Marriage sermon time. Let's go. Get your, uh, get your elbows ready to do a little... Bu- no, I'm kidding. Please don't do that. Um, I don't get that because I'm not sitting down there by Jamie. Um, but what I will get is my words uh, lovingly reminded to me um, after I preach them. So anyways, I don't know what's worse to get an elbow bump or that happening. Um, but let me, let me do this. If you're married, this is going to be easily applicable, right? We're going to we'll go right to it. If you're not married... If you've never been married, if you were used to be married, before you just stand up and walk out, let me just say this. I think this is huge for you because I think God has uniquely placed you, given you influence in other marriages in your life. Do you not have children who are married, coworkers who are married, family, friends, and neighbors who are married? And I think you could even take these principles and as your married friends would come to you and say, well, this is happening, right? You can again minister to them in amazing ways. So I want to begin by talking about smell. So just over the past uh, couple days, we're all at the house together. One of the things I love doing is waking up and cooking breakfast for my family. That must always uh, constitute bacon frying in the pan, right? And so uh, actually there's a time where we bought low-sodium bacon. And just so you know, just spoiler alert, they just take normal bacon and they cut it in half and charge you the same amount. So if you have low-sodium bacon, just wrap it in regular bacon. You'll be good to go. But I love cooking for my family. I love cooking bacon, right? Maybe I'm a little bit of controlling issue. She just love serving my family that way. But what happens when I cook that bacon? What happens to that smell? <sighs> Wafts all over the house, right? It does not stay in the kitchen. It goes to the bedrooms. It goes to the formal. It goes to the living room. It gets all over my clothes. And so if you've been frying some bacon, right, you even like leave and go out to town and people are like, did you have bacon that morning? And you're like, yes, I did. You know, you wear that smell with pride. You come back later that day, it's still in your home, right? It has saturated and permeated every fiber. And it's a good smell. But now there is a time in my and Jamie's life where a smell permeated and saturated and soaked into every fiber of our house that was the complete opposite of bacon. It was putrid, it was rotten, and it stunk. And so the way it kind of happened was, uh, is that Jamie and I, we, we went out for a date. W- what we do is we just put the kids to bed and have them sleep and we sneak out real quick. No, I'm kidding. We don't do that. <laughs> we got arrested for it and they told us we can't do that anymore. Um, so now we have caregivers come over. So the caregiver's over. Jamie and I are having a great time, getting reports back. Everything's going well. And, and then on our way home, like we, we kind of turn the corner onto our street and we catch a whiff, even in the truck. And so we're like, oh, that's terrible. What is that? It must be somebody else's home. Well, so as we kind of like pull up to our driveway, get in there, it's like we, we get out and we're like, this is obviously our home. It's this just putrid, rotten smell that's coming. And so we bust through the front door and we, we lock eyes with the caregiver and, and like we're holding our nose. We're like, what happened? And we get this story of what happened, that the, the caregiver took the macaroni and cheese noodles that she was going to make for our children and the dry noodles without any water she put in the microwave, pushed three minutes and then went to get the kids ready. So I had dry mac and cheese noodles just incinerated and nuked uh, in my microwave for three minutes. And so it's hard to describe um, that smell to you. So I would just encourage, go home and try it. That way you can really feel what I'm feeling. You know, and it permeated, saturated every, I mean, there's even still times I'll like walk by a curtain and I'll get a whiff of the uh, noodle incident of 2018, okay? And so it's still there. Now I want you to take that concept because we've all, we've all experienced that at some point. Some sort of smell that like permeates everything. 
And so this idea, I want you to apply it to your marriage. And I want you to ask, what is it that has soaked and saturated and permeated every aspect and element of your marriage? Is it a sweet, savory smell, the fruit of the Spirit? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Is that what has permeated and spread through and wafted into every area of your marriage? Or is it the works of the flesh? That one Bible translation puts it this way, the behavior of the self-life is obvious. Sexual morality, lustful thoughts, pornography, chasing after things instead of God, manipulating the other, hatred of those who get in your way, senseless arguments, resentment when others are favored, temper tantrums, angry quarrels, only thinking of yourself, being in love with your own opinions, being envious of the blessings of others, uncontrolled addiction, wild parties, and other similar behaviors. I think it's an important question to ask what saturates our marriages. Because what saturates your marriage is also the scent your marriage gives off to others. When you're around your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, that scent, what your marriage is producing, what's saturated with, is leaving a legacy, a lasting impact on the people you encounter and brush up against. So I want you to just play along. This is a little bit of a weird question, right? But just play along. Imagine this. Imagine if I took all the actions all the thoughts, all the attitudes, all the deeds of your marriage, and I could bottle it up into a perfume, what would it smell like? Would your marriage be the sweet, savory, delightful aroma that people are drawn to? Or would it stink? Be such a turnoff. People would hold their nose around it. See, each of us, we all know of great marriages. You can think about them, you see them, but if I'm just being honest, when I kind of just survey the land, it seems like there's a lot of marriages out there that stink, that are saturated with the works of the flesh, that are saturated with sinfulness and selfishness. And you know what happens when when you encounter a bad smell? You're turned off to it. It's actually to protect you. Like, I don't want to partake of this because it smells terrible. And I think when our world watches some stinky marriages, they're turned off to it. And I believe we are leaving a low-view legacy of marriage. The data bears this out. The divorce rate today is nearly twice of what it was in 1960. In 1970, almost 90% of children were born to married parents. Today, 60%. In 1960, 72% of American adults were married. In 2008, it was less than 50. We know that over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I oftentimes wonder if we think the other 50% are really even happy. 
Like, are they just like, oh, it's the old ball and chain. I mean, it makes sense on paper. Where else would I go? Is this as good as it gets? I mean, we're business partners, right? We're practical. And so our world, like Chris Rock, the comedian, he kind of took this modern view of marriage and he he made this joke. You can either be single and lonely or married and bored. And I think our culture goes, but no, that's not, that's a lose-lose. And and so a new trend has emerged of going, I don't want to be single and lonely. I don't want to be married and bored. And so cohabitation has risen. Today, over 50% of couples who are married live together before they were married. Back in 1960, almost no one did. That number almost didn't even exist. When I look around, if I'm honest, I think we're leaving a putrid legacy of marriage. And so I ask, can, can anything be done? Can, can the people of Rock Point Church, can, can the church global, can we turn the tide? Can we do something different, present a new view to the world? Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about marriage. And he goes, this mystery is profound. Like that's what we get? Marriage is a profound mystery. Thanks a lot, Paul. I already knew that. Are you saying it's an unsolvable puzzle? It's an impossible riddle? It's a complete secret? It's what it feels like. Like when you go to look on books for marriage, go online, just type in marriage books. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of books. All very different, all very modern. You're like, does anyone have cracked the code on this? Is there any like one right way to do this thing? Or are we just all left to guess? Try to figure it out. Luckily, Paul didn't stop there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying, he solves the mystery. He gives us the riddle. He says, it refers to Christ and the church. He's referencing Genesis 2. So what Paul is saying is that every marriage that has ever been in the history of the world is supposed to reflect the love of Christ for the church. That's the mystery salt. That's the riddle. Our marriage, every single marriage, is supposed to be completely, totally saturated with the gospel. With the gospel. And I want you to think about it in this way, because so many times we see that the gospel is like, oh, it's, it's, it's like God saved me, right? Like that's the gospel. But if you, if you break it down into its parts, sin, forgiveness, reconciliation, covenant, undeserved love, and sacrifice, it starts to be applicable to our marriage relationships. See, not only is a gospel-saturated marriage the secret to experiencing the richness and the fullness that God intended when he invented and gave humanity marriage. It also may be, I think, in today's world, one of the greatest evangelistic tools the church has. I mean, think about that for a second. In a world with kind of a low view legacy of marriage, in a world where a lot of marriages really stink, to have some couples just be the standout, this, the way that Christ loves the church is the way they love each other. 
When the gospel is shown through that, I mean, how sweet and savory. I mean, would the world not salivate at those marriages to go, I want a part of that. I want to partake of some of that. And so today what I want to do is go, how do we do that? How do we get there? How do we have gospel-saturated marriages? But to do so, I don't want to just tell you how, but I also want to contrast it to a different way of doing marriage. And so there's the gospel-saturated marriage, but there's the, the modern marriage. And I think Tara Parker Pope, a New York Times columnist, really summed up the, the way we maybe today view marriage. She writes, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, Marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. The emotional and intellectual needs of the spouse were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership. They want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help them attain valued goals. See, marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, but now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of individuals. Marriage used to be about us. Now, marriage is about me. And so I wanna compare and contrast eight distinctive differences between a gospel-saturated marriage and a me-centered marriage. The first distinctive, the first difference is this. It's the difference between an unconditional love and a conditional love. We see this in Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The gospel teaches us of this unconditional love. While you and I were dead in sin and trespasses, he loved us regardless, unconditional conditionally. This is good news. So just so you know, like I don't need Jamie's love. I want it. I desire it. It's a great thing, but to be a whole complete flourishing person that God has intended me to be, I don't need her love. I have all the love I ever need in Christ Jesus. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing I can do to make him love me less. He loves me wholly and completely, and that's all I need. And this is a bonus to that. Now, if you're single in the room today, that's good news for you as well. You don't need a marriage to be a whole, complete, loved person. We get that from Jesus. Now, it also does this. It frees me up to love Jamie unconditionally. True unconditional love is a decision to act by placing someone else's well-being above your own. And in the process of being obedient to love unconditionally, your emotions, your feelings 
often catch up to your obedience. Even when Jamie and I, we went through re-engage together, we, we heard the testimonies of all these couples, right, who do this, who choose to love their spouse in spite of how their spouse's behavior was making them feel. So at the end of each one of these little distinctive differences, I want to give you kind of a, this is what gospel-saturated marriage says, and this is what me-centered marriage says. So so the first distinctive difference is this unconditional love versus conditional love. I think a gospel-saturated marriage, you would say you would think you would act in accordance to this. I will commit to love you with a love that does not have to be earned, and it's not driven by my feelings. But a me-centered marriage would say this, love is an emotion that dictates what I do. My love is conditioned upon how you make me feel, and I will conveniently choose to love you when you've earned it. That's not a safe love. That love's not sure, it's manipulative and can easily be taken away. The second distinctive between a gospel-saturated and a me-centered marriage is the difference between initiating versus waiting. We see this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, Jesus moved toward us, came toward us, initiated. He didn't just sit back and go like, I'm just gonna wait till they feel sorry, till they realize what they've done. I'm gonna let them take the first move. He did nothing wrong. And he came all the way and absorbed it all. That's the gospel. And we apply that to our marriage. I think you get these kind of statements in a gospel-saturated marriage. I'll humble myself for the sake of the relationship. I'll be the first to go. I'll initiate the conversation. I'll initiate restoration, even if I wasn't in the wrong. But a me-centered marriage says something like this. I'll wait for them to get their act together. I'll wait for them to feel sorry. I'll let them suffer a little more and learn their lesson. Think about what they've done. Heck, I may never go. I may never take one step in their direction. I'm just gonna sit here and wait for them to come to me because they've wronged me. Third distinctive difference between a gospel-saturated me-centered marriage is the difference between grace and justice. 1 Timothy 1.9 says this, that God saved us. He called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and his grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now, grace is undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. And it says here in this verse that you received grace before the beginning of time. You didn't even have an an ability, the capability to earn or unearn, right? God just lavished it on us, not because of anything we've done. So the gospel is that you are so lost and flawed and sinful that Jesus had to die for you. But you are also so loved 
and valuable that he was glad to die for you, to give you what you did not earn or deserve. So a gospel-saturated marriage would say this, I can give what isn't earned, what isn't deserved because I've been given what isn't earned and what isn't deserved. Ways that grace can kind of play out in a gospel-saturated marriage. If you did not hear Ron's sermon last week on forgiveness, go listen to it. It's incredible, great way that you can apply the gospel to your marriage and give grace. I, I just think another outworking of this is the way we speak and talk about our spouses. I mean, you wanna talk about an aroma that the world picks up on about Christian marriages? It's the way we talk about our spouse. And you can give them grace. You can talk about them in a way that they don't deserve. Absolutely, you can dog them and say this and all oh, if they would just da, da 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 I don't think Jesus did that for me. Oh, Destin, such a loser. I can't believe this guy, would he get his stuff to get right? He looks at us and he says, my beloved. I mean, I think even Jesus speaks about us in a way that we don't earn or deserve. And it would lead us to do the same with our spouse. But a me-centered marriage would tell it exactly like it is. I'll just do what needs to be done. I will give exactly what is deserved. Fourth distinctive between gospel-saturated and me-centered marriage is self-sacrifice versus self-fulfillment. We see this principle from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is a reason each and every one of us want to pursue self-fulfillment over self-sacrifice. That's because you've been hurt. You've been wounded. You've been scarred and done wrong against in some form or fashion, in one way or another. And so it's just natural. We all kind of kind of bow up and go like, not again. I got to protect me. I got to be out for me. It's about my self-fulfillment, right? And so we go, how in the world could I ever be happy if I'm self-sacrificing versus being self-fulfilling? Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he writes this. Some will ask, if I put the happiness of, of my spouse ahead of my own needs, what do I get out of it? The answer is happiness. That's what you get. But it's a happiness through serving others instead of using them. A happiness that won't be bad for you. It's the joy that comes from giving from loving another person in a costly way. See, today's culture of the me marriage finds this very proposal, the putting the interest of your spouse ahead of your own as oppressive. But you were created to love God and to love others. And when you love yourself more than God and others, you're violating the very thing that you were created to do. So I took this sermon, I sent it to some people and just asked for some feedback, help me make it better for Sunday. 
And one person said, like, that's the one of the things you need to do is like put some personal examples in there of like how you're a terrible husband, and that'll help everybody like take you off a pedestal. I'm like, nobody, if you know me, I am not on a pedestal. So here's my uh, vulnerability to you. And you can pray for Jamie because now you have insight to our marriage. So it was um, early in the marriage. Uh, I still remember we were in Round Rock, Texas at the time, like 700 square foot apartment, and uh, we, we were having Chick-fil-A, and uh, it was date night, so I splurged, and we like value-sized it, okay? And, um, but I was just, I'm, I was hungry. And so we're there, we're sitting down, and Jamie's coming from the kitchen, and she, she rounds the, the corner, and she like gets her hip into like the, the bar, right? And so she falls down on the ground, just kind of like writhing in pain. Now, just cut the scene, okay? Any average husband would probably go, you okay? I mean, that's average, right? That's the low bar, okay? You know, a really good husband would like sweep her up and brush her, you know, like. So here's what I did. As my wife is writhing on pain on the ground, I take some of her chicken nuggets. (laughs) I was hungry. We didn't have a lot of money. I almost didn't even acknowledge her. I look back. Y'all can pray for Jamie, right? And I've chosen myself over her every day, every day. Every time the baby monitor goes off, every time I see a dirty dish in the sink, every time I want to go play golf, right? And it's just, that's, that's who we are. There's this, this desire for self-fulfillment. But, but tell you that story, did, did that bring me happiness, a couple extra chicken nuggets? There's a greater happiness that would have been attained had I gotten on the floor, loved and ministered, and cared for her needs above my own. A gospel-saturated marriage says this. I'll seek to serve before being served. I'll seek to meet the needs of my spouse before meeting my own. I'll use all I have to see my spouse flourish. But a me-centered marriage would say this, I've got to meet my needs first. I've got to take care of me before I can take care of anybody else. I've got to look out for me and my own interest. I can't get behind helping someone else get ahead. The fifth distinctive difference between a gospel-saturated, me-centered marriage is the purpose of holiness versus happiness. I think we see this emerge from Romans 8. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Just so, a little side note here, we so misinterpret that, like, oh, God's gonna work everything out for the good. What the good is referring to is you're being conformed into the image of his son. So Jesus loves you right where you are, but he also loves you too much to let you stay right where you are. The gospel has never been about just one decision that stamps my ticket for heaven one day. That happens, but there's an entire process of sanctification that goes on from the moment of salvation that every second of every day we should be conformed into the image of his son. That always doesn't make us happy, but there's a holiness he's trying to drive into us. 
A gospel-saturated marriage says this, I'm not yet who I should be. The best of me is still to come, so I will seek to be changed by Jesus for the better. I will seek to become more like him every day. But a me-centered marriage says this, there are some things I'd like for you to change to make me more happy. I don't really need to change. Please don't try to change me. I'm happy just the way I am. And I saw this come out so much, like a quote from some of the research I was doing is a, a person was talking about a soulmate. Here's kind of their new definition of soulmate is this. A soulmate is someone who won't change me. They'll just accept me. They will affirm me and not shackle me. If we're compatible, it means we would need to change. Such a me-centered focus on marriage. Sixth of eight distinctives between a gospel-saturated me-centered marriage is covenant versus contract. We see this emerge in John 6. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none. All those who have given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. Contract is if-then language. If you do this, then I will do this. And that only works if everybody's perfect. But covenant says, I will do this regardless of what you do. And when you look at the gospel, it's covenant. Jesus didn't say, if they behave, if they get it together, if they're nice, I'll raise them up. You put your faith and trust in Jesus, he said, I will, covenant. And so apply that to our marriage. A gospel-saturated marriage says this, I will be faithful. I am committed to you. I'm in every word of our vows. I covenant with you. You, you don't have to earn, it's not conditional. Like, I'm gonna do this regardless of what you do. But a me-centered marriage says this. I'll try to be faithful. I want to be faithful. If all goes well, I'll be faithful. I'm committing to you now. But if it goes south, something happens. If you change, if it gets hard, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, if there's a better option, if it's not going to be the best for me, then I might be fickle instead of faithful. Seventh distinctive difference between gospel-saturated and me-centered marriage is new being versus new behavior. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know how to get a bad smell out of something? Middle school boys, it is not to spray axe all over the place. <laughs> That's not gonna work. That's gonna make the problem worse. And so many times we just wanna cover up bad smells. What happens is it, it dissipates and it fades and the bad smell is still there. You know how you get rid of a bad smell? You have to have something that absorbs the bad smelling molecules and eradicates them. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the sin, the stench of sin. 
And when he raised from the grave, he has defeated that. And so you take that and you apply that to your marriage. And a gospel-saturated marriage says this, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to God, a new creation filled with the Spirit, robed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm not just sprinkling new behaviors over the top of our marriage. That's not going to work. That's Axe body spray. You have to be a new creation. It has to be absorbed and eradicated. A me-centered marriage would say, I'll try harder. I'll do better next time. If I just had this, or if you would just do that, then maybe. The eighth and final distinctive that I want to give you today is, is spirit-powered versus self-powered. We see in Romans 6, 6, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. My friends, the scripture tells us the gospel is that you and I, sin was our Lord and our master. We were enslaved to it and we had no power to overcome it or defeat it. We had to obey it. We needed another who was more powerful to come and defeat sin on our behalf. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. And therefore, as believers, we can truly obey all that God calls us to do in our marriage, regardless of any circumstance. Yes, you may need counseling. Yes, you may need time and space. Yes, you may need to sign up for a class and get some practical communication skills. But without the Holy Spirit, you are using power tools without any power. And it's not self-powered, right? It's Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So a gospel-saturated marriage would say something like this. God is strong enough. He can make a way. He will sustain me. He'll guide me. He'll give me the wisdom. But a me-centered marriage would say, I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I'm networked enough. I'm disciplined enough. And the result of that is either pharisaical pride or shame and failure. English poet William Blake, long ago, I think he captured the essence and the outcome of a gospel-saturated and me-centered marriage in this poem. A love that seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease, will build heaven in hell's despair. But a love that seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joy in another's loss of ease, builds a hell in heaven's despite. A more modern writer, I think, would use these words to describe the difference between a gospel-saturated, me-centered marriage. When one spouse asserts self-centeredness, me-centered marriage, the other spouse immediately becomes more impatient, resentful, harsh, and cold. In other words, they responded to the self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. Why? Because self-centeredness, by its very character, makes you blind to your own while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by that of others. The result is always a downward spiral into self-pity, anger, and despair. 
and the relationship gets eaten away to nothing. And I don't know about you, but I am tired of watching and hearing of my friends and marriages in this community get stuck in me-centered marriages that get eaten away to nothing. There is a better way for you, for your marriage, for the gospel going forward. If I were to sum up this entire sermon for you, here's what I would do in one sentence. The greatest enemy of your marriage is me-centeredness. But you can have a gospel-saturated marriage. You can have an incredible legacy by simply doing for your spouse what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel, the good news that we're so flawed and messed up and helpless. But in the midst of that, you, you love unconditionally. You initiate, you forgive, you're gracious. God, may every aspect of our relationship with you be mirrored, be reflected. May it saturate our marriages. May a world where we are leaving a low-view legacy of marriage See gospel-saturated marriages. Will they salivate over that? Would they desire to partake of that? Would, would you use our marriages to be one of the greatest tools of bringing people to a saving faith in you, Jesus? So God, help us. Each and every day, we're gonna stumble and fall and fail and mess up. And we just need your grace, fresh and anew. God, wherever people's marriages are at, let them know that there's hope. You're not bad-mouthing them and bad-talking them. You have power, reconciliation power. You've got better for them. So God, help us all to treat our spouse the way you have treated us. May that be a glorious scent and aroma to a watching world. Amen.